0: Welcome to this episode of When Science Makes History, entitled The Most Important Sea of the Seas, where we will investigate the molecule called ascorbic acid, or what we recognize as vitamin C. Vitamin C is an essential molecule to life. In short, we would die without about 100 to 120 milligrams per day. The number varies even beyond this, depending on your age, gender, one's level of development, and so on. In fact, it took a good while, however, to conclude the absolute necessity of this molecule in our daily existence. The vestiges of this discovery date back to, well, the age of discovery, when courageous, ocean-going captains would lead ships full of men to far-off locations in search of gold, spices, and a shortcut to the east. They weren't too many days into their voyages when the symptoms of a vitamin C-deficient diet caught up to them in the form of scurvy, depleting their numbers and bringing into question the outcome of the voyage. One captain, however, executed what is likely the first medically controlled experiment at sea, recorded his results, and administered a cure, leaving us forever in his debt. What was that cure? Well, two oranges and one lemon per man per day. The results were rather miraculous, but alas, it took a while to convince the rest of the sea captains, and the world for that matter, of this vital molecule we call vitamin C. The disease of scurvy is more aptly named a vitamin deficiency. It is a disease in which normal function is impaired and has certain signs and symptoms. Referring to it, however, as a vitamin deficiency does lend credence to the simplicity of restoring normal function. The term vitamin is a combination of two Latin words meaning vital or life-giving and amine as in an amino acid, hence vital amine or vitamin. It was originally believed that these contain an amino acid, yet they do not. Regardless, vitamin C, or ascorbic acid, is indeed vital to human survival. Scurvy, therefore, is essentially a human disease caused by the lack of ascorbic acid. This is a unique situation that only humans and a few other animals experience in that we cannot synthesize vitamin C metabolically on our own, so we must derive it from other sources. In fact, apes, guinea pigs, bats, and humans lack an enzyme called gluconolactone oxidase, which helps synthesize ascorbic acid. There's a gene called the L-gulano-gamma-lactone oxidase, or GULO gene, that these organisms lack, which gives them the ability to make their own vitamin C. Vitamin C must therefore be ingested, employing the food we eat, and this is where the problem arises. If we have a diet that does not contain enough vitamin C, we get the vitamin deficiency known as scurvy. If we have roughly 100 to 120 milligrams of vitamin C in our diet, there are no symptoms of this deficiency. Historically, as mankind took to the seas, their original craft stayed nearer to the coast and afforded sailors the ability to go ashore and acquire necessary supplies as needed. As shipbuilding progressed, navigational developments allowed voyages that extended beyond the visible coastlines and required the supplies for such voyages to be carried aboard. This meant fresh food was now at a minimum and the ship holds were filled with hardtack, salted pork, beer, rum, and cheese. The proverbial hardtack, a flour biscuit, alongside salted meat, were staple sources of food aboard ships on long voyages. Yet, neither were vitamin-rich foods. Essentially, an intake of salt, flour, and some protein from the meat washed down with either questionably clean water or some sort of alcoholic beverage were the main dietary intakes of sailors. It's hardly a surprise that scurvy symptoms often set in within weeks of leaving port. Scurvy symptoms are rather minor at first, but escalate quickly. Initially, a sense of fatigue or malaise sets in and, if not treated, turns into anemia, bruising, gum disease, and wounds unsealing themselves. Teeth eventually fall out, bloody diarrhea occurs, and sores form on the skin. This is followed by a depression. One author aptly states that it's hardly a question as to whether or not depression is a result of the symptoms or the cause. The idea that there is no food but hardtack, salty pork, and questionable water Alongside the fact your gums are bleeding, your teeth are falling out, and your breath is rancid smelling, old wounds happen to be opening up and you have no energy, well, that's just depressing. The only light at the end of the bleak tunnel is the peaceful resolution death will provide. The solution then for many voyages was simply to overman the population of sailors with the understanding that many would die en route. According to the U.S. Naval Institute, more than 2 million sailors died in the age of sail from scurvy. Magellan, for example, began with 270 men and his crew returned home with 18. In 1499, Vasco da Gama left for India with 170, only to return with 54. In fact, Vasco da Gama even lost his brother to the disease. Commodore Anson circumnavigated the world in a four-year window, starting with a crew of 1,854 men and returning with 188. If you knew you were going to lose half your crew or more to scurvy, just overpopulate the ship's need and hopefully you'll be able to return, banking on the fact that enough will survive the trip. Such was the case during the Age of Discovery where it was an accepted statistic that 50% of your crew exiting the harbor would not survive to return home. Oddly, it wasn't as if every single voyage underwent scurvy. There were cures known to exist where scurvy could be avoided. For example, the Chinese would carry potted ginger plants aboard their ships which contained about 5 milligrams per 100 grams, allowing them sufficient vitamin C on long voyages. The Dutch East India Company even stopped off in Madagascar in 1601 to acquire citrus fruits for their journey east, indicating that they made the association between citrus fruits and scurvy. We also know from history that British sailors took on the name "limeys" due to their regimen of lime juice used to stave off scurvy. One interesting historical record exists surrounding Jacques Cartier who lived just after the time of Columbus and is credited with discovering and mapping Newfoundland and the St. Lawrence Seaway region of Canada. On his second expedition during winter 1535, his crew was frozen in at the mouth of the St. Lawrence. Scurvy quickly set in and his men began dying. An Iroquois chief showed Cartier that boiling the needles of an arborvitae would cure the disease. It worked. After drinking the infusion of the needles, the men recovered in almost miraculous fashion and were back at work. These pine-like needles of the white cedar contain close to 50 milligrams of vitamin C per 100 grams, far more than the ginger plants of the Chinese. You could even do this today if you so desire. Arborvitae is an incredibly common plant and we use it as a landscaping shrub. Pull some needles, place them in boiling water, make a tea or infusion and drink in your vitamin C albeit the pine taste may be a little bit strong. There are more simple ways to do this in today's world using the countless vitamin supplements available to the average consumer. Let's talk vitamins. First off, it's important to note that the vitamins fall into one of two categories, water-soluble or fat-soluble. Fat-soluble vitamins include vitamin D, E, K, and vitamin A, which if you've ever taken vitamin supplements, you recognize that vitamin E and vitamin A often appear as oils in a little gel cap. They also tend to come from the oils of fish or other organisms. There are better reasons for the classification, but for now, that'll suffice. The water-soluble vitamins include vitamin B, such as B6 and B12, along with thymine, niacin, riboflavin, biotin, folate, sometimes called folic acid, and our good friend, vitamin C. Since it is water-soluble, we can ingest it where it crosses over into our body through our digestive system and into our bloodstream. In fact, we have a pool of this vitamin in our body that taking a vitamin supplement serves to maintain. There is a point, however, where in our body says we have enough and it expels the rest out of our body in the reverse process via urine and waste. Medical scientists have calculated the amount needed to maintain the pool and refer to it as our recommended daily allowance or RDA. Anything over the RDA vitamin C is expelled in the urine and anything under the RDA vitamin C could eventually lead to scurvy. The RDA for vitamin C is about 100 to 120 milligrams, depending on age, gender, and developmental status, meaning whether you're a toddler who is rapidly developing or an elderly individual who is not. Bear in mind, this is an incredibly oversimplified version of vitamins and RDA for the purposes of this podcast. So what does vitamin C do in our body and why do we need it? Well, there's some easy to explain aspects of vitamin C and some not so easy. One of the easy ones is that vitamin C enhances the production of collagen. It is critical in healing due to its vital role in the formation of collagen protein. In patients who recently had surgery where an incision has occurred, the healing process begins as soon as surgery concludes, as the tissues look to seal back together and close the incision. This relies heavily on the production of collagen to form sealing tissue, which holds the wound closed even after the sutures are removed. This is why scurvy victims can see old wounds open back up. For example, a sailor with a sword gash to the leg could see it heal and years later on another voyage get scurvy and see that same wound open back up. Kind of ghastly if you think about it. Collagen is also essential to produce healthy blood vessels, bone tissue and muscle tissue. Again, this helps explain why bleeding breaks out in victims and insufficient vitamin C leads to poorly constructed blood vessels. Vitamin C also enhances the body's ability to absorb iron from iron-containing foods. This too is vital as we recognize the role that iron has in the production of hemoglobin, cytochrome complexes, red blood cell formation, and the oxygen carrying capacity. These quickly make sense to our present understanding of human physiology, yet some more curious roles are not so easy to understand. Some of the more biochemical roles surround the ability of a vitamin to help convert food to energy via a group of oxidation reduction reactions. As a byproduct, these reactions produce molecules called free radicals. Free radicals are just that radical, and free-roaming. These are rather destructive little gremlins that damage DNA, damage cell membranes, and pretty much leave us mortal rather than immortal. To combat these, there are antioxidants like vitamin A, vitamin C, and vitamin E. Therefore, people who eat diets rich in fresh fruits and vegetables therefore get lots of antioxidants to wipe out the free radicals and, in general, appear to be healthier. Let's go back to some of the history behind the discovery of vitamin C and its effect. Britain, at the time, was one of the most powerful nations, mostly due to its fleet of ships conquering the known world. On May 20, 1747, Captain James Lind, who was serving as a physician aboard the HMS Salisbury, conducted a medical experiment complete with an experimental and a control group. He divided 12 of his scurvy-ridden lot of sailors into groups. This makes for a good start to his experiment. A control group to compare against and an experimental group to experiment upon. He was convinced that the cause of scurvy was related to diet and some sort of acid deficiency. That conclusion was quite close to the reality, actually. Lind took his sailors, all with similar scurvy symptoms, and altered their diet from the standard hardtack and salt pork to a gruel of broth, rice, raisins, currants, and wine. Then, to this, he added some supplements. Dividing up the 12, he gave the first two a quart of apple cider daily, Two received vinegar, another two received a half pint of seawater, two received an elixir of vitriol, which was basically a mixture of sulfuric acid and alcohol, and two received a mixture containing nutmeg, garlic, mustard, seeds, cream of tartar, barley water, and gum myrrh. The last two received the treatment of treatments, two oranges and a lemon each day. The results were as miraculous as Cartier's men and the tea of cedar needles. Within a week, the citrus-treated group was back on deck fit for duty. One can only assume that Lynde stopped the experiment and treated the remaining ten with the same regimen, thereby seeing them back to service. One would also think this conclusive evidence that Lynde provided would change seafaring diets around the world. But again, we would be wrong. It didn't catch on. Some sailors would rather tempt fate with scurvy than be caught eating a salad and some fruit. Meat was manly even back then. One author noted that this was the reason scurvy was less common in ship's officers than the average crew member. Officers tended to come from a higher class and were more open-minded to alterations in diet and willing to try new fare. Later in 1758, this would change under Captain James Cook of the British Royal Navy. He was insistent on two things, hygiene and diet the cleanliness of the ship and its crew alongside the adherence to a diet of fruits and vegetables. The Royal Navy eventually caught on and prescribed three quarters of an ounce of lemon juice to its sailors each day. This essentially wiped out scurvy in one fell blow. The oddity around this, however, is that in order to acquire such quantities of the fruit, lemons, namely, they would have to broker a deal with Spain They were the main lemon supplier at the time, which was just not gonna happen since England was at war with Spain. An easier option was to import limes from the Caribbean, which was a territory of theirs at the time, and the rest is history per se, as we now see why they acquired the name Limeys. This, incidentally, was a derogatory term foisted upon the British by US sailors during the War of 1812, who found this practice of drinking lime juice in their opponents as rather bizarre. So, today, where do we get vitamin C outside of a supplemental tablet? Well, obviously, as we stated, fresh fruits and vegetables, but maybe not the ones we typically think of. We all know citrus fruits, oranges, lemons, limes, grapefruits, all contain vitamin C. These are indeed sufficient in their vitamin C levels to meet our RDA, but really not the highest vitamin C level fruits. That distinction belongs to kiwi fruits, guavas, and a unique berry called the camu camu. Camu camu is the highest, ringing in at 2,000 milligrams in comparison to the lemon, which is kind of low at 53 milligrams. I had to research the camu camu. It's an Amazonian berry that looks like a golden raisin when dried and packaged. Oddly, there are side effects to eating too many, such as iron overload and digestive upset. It's no wonder considering this little berry is 20 times the RDA of vitamin C. Fresh vegetables also contain vitamin C. Again, not the usual suspects as we find that parsley is high and potatoes are low, but sufficient nonetheless. Then there are meats, internal organs and blood. As disturbing as this may seem, there is some value to the early hunter's practice of eating the raw liver of the recent kills. A deer, for example, can metabolize its own vitamin C, whereas a human hunter cannot. Eating its internal organs, liver, kidneys, etc., can provide that essential vitamin in a proxy form via the animal's metabolism. A bizarre side note on this, which will undoubtedly be the fodder for a future episode, is the danger of eating polar bear livers. An expeditionary group looking for the North Passage killed an eight polar bears, liver included, and some, well, died. This is due to the incredible amounts of the fat-soluble vitamin A stored in the apex predator's liver. So the average individual in a well-developed society will have little to no problem acquiring necessary vitamin C from their average diet and will not need to resort to eating animal organs. By the way, the cooking of fruits and vegetables tends to break down some of the vitamin C, which is why the values are calculated based on fresh, fruits and vegetables. We all recognize that these vitamin supplements, tablets, powders and additives and so on cannot possibly come from the extraction of fruits and vegetables. Indeed, they do not. Hopefully we recall from previous episodes the ability to synthesize organic compounds in the laboratory and how Friedrich Wohler's initial synthesis of urea without the aid of a kidney, dog or otherwise, led to this branch of science we now know of as organic chemistry. The first objective of any synthesis is to identify the molecule. Hungarian scientist Albert Zengiorgi noted that the chemical could be derived from the adrenal cortex of cows, but found also that paprika peppers were actually more abundant sources and likely one that's more easily acquired than cutting open cow organs, harvesting adrenal glands, and filtering out the residue. Makes sense. In 1931, he became the first to identify the vitamin C molecule and began efforts towards synthesizing this molecule. The first chemical synthesis of vitamin C was later performed in Switzerland in 1933. Shortly thereafter, a means of synthesizing vitamin C from glucose was discovered, thereby making vitamin C a widely available pure vitamin now available to the public. Massive amounts of vitamin C were now able to be produced synthetically in the laboratory without the aid of a fruit or vegetable to make use of Voler's quote. Vitamin C is practically in every food we ingest in the United States. Just look at the back of a package of everything from jello to crackers to cereal. Yet, if you look at the ingredients of packaged food, you will not find vitamin C or vitamin A, for that matter, listed on the RDA table. Only vitamin D, iron, calcium, and potassium. You see, the FDA concluded that deficiencies of these vitamins are so rare, they no longer need to be listed in the ingredients. That being said, it is often added to many foods as a supplement to prevent spoiling. Ascorbic acid is a food preservative, in other words. So while some foods may promote their vitamin C fortified, it actually may be due to the desire of that company to include it as a food preservative. So what about the idea that if a small amount prevents scurvy, a large amount will prevent, well, cancer, colds, and any other sickness? This is the idea that mega doses of vitamin C can boost the immune system, and in so doing, prevent a cold and even act as a prophylaxis of wintertime sickness. There's a host of supplements intended to give a quick mega dose of vitamin C to prevent sickness while flying, or an emergency boost to the immune system by a 1,000 milligram dose of vitamin C in a powder form. Does this work? And where did this idea come from? Well, much of this idea stems back to an American scientist named Linus Pauling. If you're familiar with the high school chemistry class, he is the one who developed the scale of electronegativity. This scale runs from a low of 0 for unreactive elements to a high of 4 for highly reactive elements. He essentially placed a grade from 0 to 4 on all the elements on the periodic table to describe their reactivity level in each reaction. That is sort of an oversimplification, but suffice to explain the nature of what Pauling did. In fact, he went on to receive a Nobel Prize for his work in chemistry. In fact, he even went on to win a second Nobel Prize for his opposition to nuclear weapons. Only four people, by the way, have won two Nobel Prizes. One alone is quite a feat, so to be awarded two is rather remarkable. This may have been his downfall. In Offit's work entitled Pandora's Lab, Seven Stories of Science Gone Wrong, the author intimates that Pauling suffered from Nobel Prize disease. I'd strongly encourage anyone to read this text as it's an understandable and scientific text that explains how science isn't always perfect. A very short explanation of the vitamin C debacle goes like this. The University of Minnesota published a paper in 1942 in the Journal of the American Medical Association showing that vitamin C had no effect on people with colds. Pauling believed otherwise and considered vitamin C to be the key to immortality. He espoused that taking even 10,000 milligrams a day, which is 1,500 times the RDA, would cure everything, including cancer. He even published a book in 1970 entitled Vitamin C and the Common Cold, promoting the idea that 500 times the RDA of vitamin C would cure the common cold. That's about 3,000 milligrams per day. In 1979, a research experiment at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, tested his theory by taking 150 patients and giving half of the group megadoses of vitamin C and the other half not. They published their findings under a paper entitled, Failure of High-Dose Vitamin C Therapy to Benefit Patients with Advanced Cancer, a Controlled Trial, with an emphasis on the word failed. Indeed, it had no effect. By that time, however, everyone was buying into Pauling's advice and ignoring numerous scientific studies all proving otherwise. It seems like we like the idea of vitamin C and don't want to be bothered with the facts or the data. Pauling only upped his game, increasing his call to 10,000 milligrams a day, and unfortunately he and his wife were both taking these mega doses. Long story short, Pauling's idea of vitamin C and its ability to ward off the common cold are not substantiated by numerous scientific studies. but the idea persists. While Pauling was not incorrect in the idea that adding vitamin C to your diet is a good thing, moderation is again the key. A recommended daily amount of vitamin C is essential to a healthy life, but too much is a detriment to a healthy life. Contrary to supplement enthusiasts, more is not always better. As Irish poet Oscar Wilde states, everything in moderation, including moderation. Who knows? the benefits of consuming megadoses of vitamin C when you have a cold may actually be a placebo study. And that is where we'll leave off on our investigation of vitamin C. So thanks for listening to this episode of When Science Makes History, entitled The Most Important Sea of the Seas, where we investigated ascorbic acid, scurvy, lemons, and limes, megadoses of vitamin C, antioxidants, water-soluble vitamins, fat-soluble vitamins, and polar bear livers. I trust you enjoyed the content and it expanded your understanding of this topic. If you have time, please leave a review on Spotify, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. And again, thanks for listening.